jump into. Uh, we're continuing The Great Escape. This is our 71st message uh, in the book of Exodus. I know that is not daunting to you. I think that's a wonderful thing that we've been taking this time to do this. But last week as we continued in chapter 34, the Lord was reminding Moses of his expectations of the people as they would begin to head towards the promised land. He was sounding the alarm of the dangers that were ahead of them, what they were going to face in Canaan, and he was pointing them to the different areas of weakness that they had in their culture in the, the message which was called Warnings of Sin. This morning, the Lord is going to shift his instructions off of simply warning them of what is to come and what to be careful of and actually giving them, uh, talking about personal accountability. And he's going to be talking about his expectations of them in our message this morning called Instructions in Righteousness. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you, God, for today. God, I thank you for this message. Lord, I know specifically that you have spoken to me through it. Uh, Lord, I know, thank you so much, Father, for the word. I thank you, Lord, for the amazing uh, scriptures that you've given us, God, that are timeless. And Lord, the way that you speak, not only of what was going on thousands of years ago, but what's going on in our daily culture. Thank you so much for uh, speaking to us. Lord, thank you, Lord, for giving me this message. Pray that, Lord, you'll speak through me. Uh, Father, the words I will share not be the ones that I would choose, but, Lord, the very ones that you would give me. God, let your name be exalted today in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, to get us a review to make sure we're all up to speed of where we are. Uh, and if you weren't here last week, man, you missed it. Uh, you were probably here, but you were online. I didn't see it. But you weren't here physically, so. <laughs> but we're back with Moses. We're back up on Mount Sinai, right? We know that he was back up there before. This is the second time that he's gone. He's actually now received the Ten Commandments a second time. And what happened the first time, he shattered them, right? He came down, he caught the Israelites right in the midst of idolatry in this golden calf, and he shatters them on the ground in his anger. But what's really neat is the fact that even though his people were unfaithful. Even though he was angry, what we notice is the fact that his heart for them does not change. Even though they have been disloyal to God, he still will stick his neck out for them time and time again. So this time when he's up on the mountain, God's given, has given, just given the warnings. He's giving them things to be wary of as they go forward. But the main subject of his warnings was really about idolatry. He was talking about this issues of seduction of false practices of, of dealing with these false gods. And what happens because of this Uh, This type of idolatry, what it does is it feeds our flesh, right? It feeds upon our flesh. It feeds upon the weaknesses of the Israelites. And he's warning them of these weaknesses, saying, hey, just because you're predisposed to these things, that doesn't mean you're going to fall prey to them, but you need to be careful. He's warning them, right? Moses and God struggle with these people. They have a problem with succumbing to sin. And I know that sounds terrible, but guess what? Don't we all have a problem with succumbing to sin? It's a pretty much a picture of who we are, right? So... And the whole point is, why do you think God gives us hundreds and literally thousands of warnings in the Scripture? Warning after warning after warning. They're not just for the the people that he's talking to here, but they're speaking prophetically into the future to us and to our own very lives. So you and I are struggling with these things as well. He gives verbal warnings, but he also gives warnings through people's stories, right? This is really loud. Thank you so much. Um, he, he gives verbal warnings, so he allows them to see, but also he teaches, he shows us through stories. From kings to lepers, right, from all, every spectrum, he goes through and he says, hey, you know what, bottom line is, let me show you these people that have made big mistakes. And you want to, just as a side note, I want you to consider this. If you were going to create a book to sell a religion, to sell a concept, would you fill it with all kinds of failure? 
Would you fill it full of nothing but examples of people? Here's a great example. Oh, guess what? Crash, they just fell. Oh, here's a great example. Crash, he fell. Here's a great example. Look at his lack of faith. Look at his unfaithfulness. No, because these are real people. These are real stories. And the same struggles that they have are the same struggles that you and I live with. So not only can we be encouraged by the fact of their successes, but we can also be encouraged by their failures because we can see God can still use their lives. I don't invade you guys. My life is a series of failures. It's just a matter of ups and downs. That's the way it is. We try our best to do well, but you know what? We fall prey to ourselves. So yet again, God's giving these, these examples. He's teaching us. He's showing us. And Moses communes with God here. And what God's doing is he's instructing him. Yes, he's teaching him. He's telling him what to watch out for. But at the same time, he's helping Moses kind of get his mind around what he's getting ready to do. He says, hey, you know, there's an expectation of you're going to take these millions of people through this wilderness, and there are challenges ahead, and there are all kinds of people that want to kill you and destroy you, but I'm going to be with you. I'm going to take care of them. You just need to worry about keeping these people faithful. So that's kind of where we're at right now. These stiff-necked Israelites, man, in spite of themselves, God loves them. Moses is willing to stick his neck out for him, and here we go in Exodus 34, 17, picking up. He finished now. I, for whatever reason, God made the break last week when I, read, when I studied the Scriptures. There's one last message, or there's one last warning that we're going to start with this morning, and it's this one. Thou shalt make thee no molten gods, right? Notice at the very tail end, this is the final part of the instruction, or the warnings, is the very one that started this whole mess in the first place, right? So now he goes back into this. So not only is this weakness for these Israelites uh, to fall into idolatry, it's a weakness for all of humanity. We all struggle with idolatry. Now, it's... I don't necessarily mean you are going to worship an idol, but what I mean is this. If you don't have something that you can worship, what will happen in humanity is we will simply put ourselves in the place of worship. We will become our own idol. And there are people that will go, that's ridiculous. That's silly. That's, that's nuts. The whole thing is the whole aspect of believing that God doesn't exist, that you'll hear this from people. You know, God doesn't exist. There's no proof that God exists. And that's true. If you disregard creation... Let's look at creation. So we look at creation. Intricate, inexplicable order. A balance that is so fine and so minute down to a microscopic level that if one tiny change takes place at any one of these levels, the entire system falls apart. Intricately, perfectly balanced. Total calamity from the slightest change. Let's look at, you'd have to, dis, you'd have to, to refute or just uh, disregard the laws of science. One of the most blaring examples from science, the second law of thermodynamics makes a very clear distinction. It says clearly, you cannot derive order from chaos. That is a law, right? So I want to give you an example. So let's imagine we take a pocket watch. And let's say that Steve disassembles it. Steve, right? Steven. Let's say Steven disassembles it down to every minute gear and spring and everything. And he puts it in a box. And he goes, here, go shake that. And let's say I'm shaking, and I'm shaking, and I keep opening it up. How many times do you think I'm going to have to shake it until I open it and find a functioning pocket watch? No matter, if I shook it for 10 million, zillion, trillion, gazillion years, whatever, I'm never going to go, oh, it works, good. Because guess what? Chaos never creates order. We look at our world that is incredibly orderly, full of systems that are all interconnected, and you're telling me that these things chaotically came together from an explosion, because guess what? The very best example that scientists can come up with, it came from a big bang, which happens to match the biblical account, but it removes the biblical aspect of God and the order of God, and you say an explosion is going to create order. That is absolutely contrary to the scientific belief. It takes great faith to believe something like that. So, then historical You'd have to disregard the historical records. Not only, now the Bible itself is an amazing historical book. But what's cool about the Bible is it's past 
its present and its future. <laughs> and it's awesome as it keeps revealing to us that it is more and more, it, the things that it says are going to happen keep happening again and again and again. It's never been proven wrong, which is amazing. But let's say you just take the Bible out of it and you say, look, well, I don't believe in the Bible. Okay. But then you go back and you look at, let's say, the Roman Empire and the Roman historians. Guess what they had a problem with? Christians. This faith that was causing all these issues within the empire, and there's all these writing interconnecting of leaderships, making communications back and forth. You go to the Jewish historians. Josephus, who wrote prolifically about the Jewish issue and the problem with these Jews, with these Christians. You can go to other carriers, other, the Assyrians, people, different groups that existed. And guess what? You find all these records of Christianity. Then you look at the archaeological record, right? What's really neat is the fact that a lot of these places that in the years past, in other generations, they would say that a lot of the locations or places that are mentioned in the Bible were fabrications of the authors of the Bible. They created these places. But what's really wonderful is now, is even especially like in Israel, as they dig down below layers of the streets, because what's happened is you have cities built upon cities. What they're finding is specific locations that are not only found in the right places, but literally down to very specific detail, they're exactly what they are described in the Scripture. So it's a wonderful thing. The more archaeologists dig, the more they prove Scripture to be true. So if we take all of those things, and then we look at the very last one, our own biology, right? Look at your human body, right? We all have a body. Guess what it can do? It can grow. It can heal. It can adapt. And it can reproduce itself, And you're telling me that that thing created itself just out of random chance, that somehow humanity created itself, somehow animals created themselves. Look at, go down to the microscopic level, to the blueprint of life, DNA, deoxyribonucleic acid from biology class. I don't remember what my teacher's name was, but I remember that. That's the only thing I remember from school, but I mean, that one I got, deoxyribonucleic acid for some reason stuck in my head. DNA, and you know what it is? It's a bunch of tiny little proteins, and all these little tiny proteins come together in a microscopic level, and they make this perfect, intricate, amazing system. And every single thing on the planet has a DNA, all from the same designer, using the same system that was all put in place. So we look at that, and you have to discount all of those things in order to believe that this incredible, massive, complicated system of interdependence is all by random chance. And I would tell you that from my perspective, that would take blind faith, not based upon what you see, but based on what you want to believe. And what does God think of this foolishness in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 18 and 20? He says, let no man deceive himself, okay? If any, man, if any man among you seemeth, seemeth means appears, if he appears to be wise in the world, well, that's obviously, looks can be deceiving, let him become a fool. What this means is from God's perspective, let him become a fool, right? That he may be wise, right? What that means is he's got to be to become a fool in God's eyes in order to truly see the truth. For the wisdom, he says here, explains to it, for the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. So what we believe to be all the answers and all everything here, guess what? God says, you know what? That's a bunch of silliness. It's not even right. For it is written, he taketh the wise in their own craftiness. Where it says it is written, that's referring back to Job 5.13. Job Job is the oldest book in the Bible. So the arrogance of humanity, guess what? It goes way back, way back, way back. Thousands and thousands of years. The same issues they had back then are the same issues people struggle with now. And it says verse 20, and again, the Lord knoweth the thoughts of the wise that they are vain. That word vain means futile. They have no purpose. They've wasted their time trying to understand God because guess what he says? My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. God works in what's called supernatural ways, and you and I work in the natural world. No matter how much bluster, 
they may, may, they may create about God not existing and how many books they may publish and how many people they get to agree them. It will not change the reality of God and it will not change the power of God. So what we have to find is the fact the sad fact is the people that are most impacted by it are them. They're the ones that are going to face the adversity. They're the ones that are one day going to have a rude awakening, the fact that God is real. Romans 1, verses 20 and 22 says this. Romans 1, 20 says this. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. What I want you to pay attention to, there's two parts of this I really want you to look at. So it says, invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. So what he's saying is, in the creation that you can look at with your eyes, I'm going to prove my existence through that creation. We just talked a little bit about that. But then also it says here, there's an interesting point that's in here that's just a little just stuck in here. It says, even his eternal power and Godhead. Okay, The Godhead, what that's talking about is the Trinity of God. That's God the Father, that's God the Son, that's God the Holy Ghost. Three in one. Okay, So what God's saying is if you'll look into creation, you're going to see three in one in creation. Well, let's take a look and see if we can't see it. In his creation, what do we see? Consider the parts of humanity. Parts, you know, from a biblical perspective, we know that we are, we are body, we are soul, and we are spirit, right? Three in one. But let's say you discount that one. You can look, I don't believe in all that stuff, so you don't soul, whatever, it doesn't matter. But look at the natural kingdom, right? If you look at the natural kingdoms of earth, what earth, what do you have? Animal, you have vegetable, and you have mineral. Three in one. Let's look at the primary colors. You have red, blue, and yellow. Three in one. Let's look at the forms of nature, right? Solid, liquid, gas. Look at the environments, land, sea, and air. Look at the dimensions, height, depth, width. Look at this. So go down to an atomic level, right? He says everything you see, everything you see, parts of humanity, kings of nature, primary colors, forms of matter, environments, dimensions, down to an atomic level. What does it happen on an atomic level? Proton, neutron, electron, three. Three and one. Spectrum, the light. How do you see? Because light exists. If you take light and you break it down to its absolute factor, the overall concept, spectrum of light, it is radio waves, gamma rays, cosmic rays. Three, 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 three. Three, three, it's all over creation. And everything you can see with your eyes, everything, yeah. all of it, is in threes. Because he says, what do you see in that creation? My eternal power and Godhead. How amazing is that? And think about this, all the way down. Even time, past, present, future. Three, 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 three. Verse 21. Because that when they knew God, right, when they saw him and they had no they could see and they could, they could see his existence, they glorified him not as God. They chose not to see him. Neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened, right? They turned from the light, and they embraced the dark, right? The Bible talks about the fact that people seek the darkness because their deeds are evil. Verse 22 professing themselves to be wise. Boy, they'll have big conferences and everybody comes together and they slap each other on the back with their lab coats. Wow, it's amazing theory you came up with. Amazing theory, amazing theory, amazing theory. You know what a theory is? A theory is an educated guess. How many theories have changed over the law of science, right? For a long time, the earth was flat. Guess what? Go watch the horizon and watch a ship sail away. When it comes back, you're like, man, that doesn't make sense, 
right? If the earth was flat, it would have fallen off. But then purposely, guess what? They oppose God. They take their own ideas and they allow themselves to not to recognize that there's a creator with a specific design and a specific style with the supernatural power to change this, to create the same spirit of rebellion, the same spirit of rebellion we see in humanity that is pervasive in our culture is the exact same spirit of rebellion that's in these Israelites. It just takes a different form. It's the same issue. It's the same struggle of wills, right? Science, man. Scientists can study the natural world. And you know what they can do? They can discuss it with you, and they can tell you all the things that they saw. But when it comes to explaining it, that's where it all kind of falls apart. Because they don't understand. How do you create life? We're not sure. That's just a kind of happens. How does the human body know to heal? How does it know all these things? Well, the body just does. They talk about what it does, and they tell you what they observe, but they can't tell you how it does it. Right? We know how we can measure gravity, but no one understands how gravity functions. They don't understand why the planets travel in the ellipses that they do. They don't understand that the moon has to be just the right distance away from the earth, that it works and controls the tides, and, they are, and the sun is just far enough away so that it can, cannot burn us to, to crisp and not freeze us to death. And when they crisscross, they just happen to be the exact same size. How crazy is that? An amazing system. Those people have got to deny that truth in order to, to see what they see. So when you're fine, you, what you'll find when you talk to them, what it comes down to is this. They are unwilling to, to, to admit that God exists because in doing so, they've got to relinquish the throne of their life. And they've got to be saying, you know what? Not my will, but thine be done, right? And we want things done the way we want them done. We're a vain, self-centered human beings. We want control, but the problem is that our perceived control, guess what, is an illusion. Look at the coronavirus. <laughs> How much control have we had? The whole planet has been impacted by something that we cannot even see. And that's just one tiny little thing. It's just about this surrendering our will to God's. And that's something we don't like to do. Last week, we were dealing with warnings, right? And what we're going to notice is we're going to see a shift. Here's where the shift takes place. God's going to change things from this point forward. Verse number 18. The feast of unleavened bread shalt thou keep seven days. Thou shalt, thou shalt eat unleavened bread as I command thee in the time of the month Abib. For in the month Abib thou camest out from Egypt. So we discussed here, this is back in Exodus 13 when this all first took place, when they first left Egypt, this, this command about the leavened bread was given at that time. And what he's simply talking about, and we discussed this before, in fact, Riley made bread last night for the first time. We've never made homemade bread. Dude, that was awesome. That's really cool. But what leaven does, you've got a little bit of leaven, that little bit of, of uh, what's it called? Yeast. And dude, that thing just kept growing up, and she'd grow, it would glow up, and then she'd beat it back down, and it would grow back up, and she'd beat it back down, and it would grow back up. You know, and it, but it's amazing. But it, what it does, what we understand is yeast is actually a picture of sin. Just that little bit of sin, it actually affects the entire humanity, right? So God warns us, and we talk about this aspect of the yeast or the, the leaven. God's saying, look, this needs to be removed from you, right? He's simply saying, like, say, look, the whole point is God's saying, you know, he wants to shift them away from the lure, from focusing on the lure of sin and recognize the fact that, you know, now I just want you to start refining your personal walk. This instruction is about how do you walk with me? How do you picture a sinless life? How do you picture a life in your diet even? in preparation for where it is we're going to go, because you're going to go into this place where there's going to be temptations. And what you need to do is start refining yourself. You need to start sanctifying yourself. You need to start setting yourself apart, because you can't be like the world when you go into these places, because guess what these pagans will do? They will draw you right into the groves and into the altars, and they'll lure you by sin and by food and all kinds of things that will draw you. So he's warning them about sanctification. 2 Timothy 2, verse 19 and 21 through 21 says this, Nevertheless, 
The foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his, and let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. This is what God's trying to do, sanctify them now, get them to start focusing on this, even starting in their diet. But in a great house, verse number 20 says, but in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and of earth, some to honor and some to dishonor. What this is talking about in his humanity. There are some people that honor God and they live for him, and there are other people that dishonor God. They don't live for God. Now it says in verse number 20, One, if a man therefore purge himself from these, right, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work. God says, hey, if you will sanctify, if you'll remove yourself from these things, if you'll sanctify yourself from sin, guess what? I can use your life to make a difference. Keep in mind, the Lord wants to use every one of these Israelites exactly as he's been using Moses. His whole goal is to see them, to be used of him, to make a difference in the planet, to establish his people on earth. And guess what? That's God's desire for us. That's what he wants to do with every one of us. The way he's used Moses, the exact same submission we see in him is exactly what you and I should be picturing. The problem is they are stiff-necked, they are self-willed, and they are stubborn, just like us. If we're honest, that's who we are. We're stiff-necked. We like things, I want to go my way. Right? Self-willed, and we're stubborn, man. We don't like to, to turn our way. Just like the Israelites, we need instructions from God. But thankfully, not only get to hear their instructions, right? We get to to listen to what God tells them, but he also gives very specific instructions directly to us out of the scriptures. And we're like, so what's interesting, I want you to listen to this. Listen to Jesus' prayer for us in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is for us. John 17, 17. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You might say, now, is that really talking to us? I mean, I know he's praying that, but is he really talking? That's 2,000 years ago. Is he really saying that to us? Go down to verse 20. What does he say? Neither I pray for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. Those that will get saved in the future. This prayer right here to sanctify them is also for those. That's us. So in order to be sanctified, to be set apart, guess what we use? We use God's Word. That's God's plan. We use God's word. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. When you and I want to know what we should do, you want to know what it means to do righteously, to to do things properly, you don't need to go to your friends. You don't need to go to to our culture. You don't need to go to Facebook. You don't need to go find a book on how to do right. You You don't need to go to your parents. You don't even need to come to your pastor. We'll all try to advise you, but the bottom line is our advice is going to be to do the same thing. Go to the Word, go to the Word, go to the Word, go to the Word. You want instruction in righteousness? Go to the source of righteousness. You want to know how to live? Go to God's instructions. Don't listen to us. You're going to come to us, and guess what? Constantly, we're going to point you back to the Bible. People can ask Christy and I advice, and you know, every time we try to give you an answer, it's going to be grounded in a scriptural truth. If we're, if we're giving you our opinion, it's a waste of time. You don't need our opinion. You don't need our, our wisdom, because guess what? It ain't going to get you anywhere. But I'm in more trouble if we do it our way. The greater your dependence upon the word, the greater peace you'll experience in your life. From personal experience, let me tell you this. The greater you submit and the more you center your life around the word of God, the greater peace you will have, the greater joy you will have, the greater fulfillment you'll have, the greater love you'll have. You have ability not only to be the person that you always hoped you could become because God's going to help you to meet your, your, uh, your potential, but guess what? You'll impact people around you in a way that you always wanted to impact people. 
God can take your life and use it in such ways that we cannot even fathom. If you had told either of us, you know, almost 19 years ago, that one day we would get to preach the word of God and watch it change people's lives and see. (laughs) Take a life that you didn't think was worth much. Use it for something great. I mean, that's. That's only God, man. Only God. And so it's just a matter of us being willing, man. It's absolutely essential to have this word in the middle of your life. Because if you're not, if you're not daily in this word, guess what? You're cheating yourself and you're cheating your family. You are hurting everyone that you care about. If you truly love people, man, put your heart into this word and let it speak out of your life. And as it speaks out of your life, you will make a difference in people. You'll, You'll change the world. The question is, to church, do we have ears to hear? That's the key. Because I can tell you this stuff. And we can live this stuff. And, you, and, some, and some of you guys are living it. I'm not saying you're not. But I'm telling you, it's one thing to hear it. It's one thing to know it. It's another thing to apply it. You have to use what you know. God can do great things, man. But we shackle his hands when we don't apply what he teaches us. And what we see here is Moses is receiving instruction and in righteousness from God. He's saying, look, just get him to do these things. Get him to be faithful. Get him in the word. Here again, God reiterates his instructions that he had that he told us back in Exodus 13 and verse 19 here. All that openeth the matrix is mine. Openeth the matrix, that means those are born out of the womb. It says, every firstling among, among thy cattle, whether ox or sheep, that is male, but, the, but the firstling of an ass, thou shalt redeem with a lamb. And if thou redeem him not, then thou shalt break his neck. The reason that is, is because an ass is considered an unclean beast. It had to be redeemed by what's considered a clean beast, which would have been a lamb. And if he did not redeem it with that lamb, then you were to kill that firstborn. All the firstborn of thy sons thou shalt redeem, and none shall appear before me empty. What God is saying here is he's saying, look, you're to hold nothing back. You're to hold nothing back from me. I want you to give everything to me. He's receiving these instructions, and his whole thing is about reverencing God. He's trying to teach them, look, you need to reverence me. 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 Keep me a priority. This whole portion, what it's telling us is hold nothing back from God. So many times what happens is we give certain amounts to God and we hold some things back for ourselves. You know what? God, I'll give you this, but I don't know if I want to give this up. I'll do this, but I'm not sure I'm willing to do this. When we apply this to ourselves, the question we have to ask ourselves is what are we holding back from God? What part of you are you not giving to him? Because he needs all of you. The part that you compartmentalize and you justify the reason that you're keeping this for yourself is wrong. God expects surrender. And you will not be used of God until you fully surrender. And when you do, what you thought you needed to hold on to, you'd be like, why did I want that? What in the world? That was holding me back. It was an anchor in my life. Let me let it go. Because you know what? Now God can really accelerate me forward. And it's awesome. God has a great purpose for us. It would just let him work. So as the Israelites leave these instructions, um, they got this. Now, when they first left Egypt, right? Before teaching them, he's teaching them again about reverencing him. Yet so many times, you and I, what do we do? We fulfill our agenda. We accomplish our goals. We'll fulfill our desires. And we never consider the Lord in any of it. We're just like, hey, you know what? As long as I get what I want and I get it when I want, I'm I'm good. And it becomes short-term thinking. We don't think about the long term. We don't think about the impact that we're necessarily having on so many people as long as we're fulfilled. 
We're happy. That's all that really matters. 2 Timothy 3, there are two descriptions in here that I'm going to read to you that describes the church of today. And I'm not just talking about this church. I'm talking about the church, the body as a whole across the planet, right? 2 Timothy 3, this prophetic book is literally, it is speaking into the future and it's literally talking about us today. In verse number 2, we hear this description says, For men shall be lovers of their own selves. Mm. That means they are focused on fulfilling themselves over anything else. Verse 4 says this, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. God just wants us to understand. If we are loving ourselves, then guess what? We're not giving God our all. We're holding things back for us because what's more important, for God to be pleased or for me to be pleased? We won't miss out, man. I'm telling you, if we will do that, if we will let it go, we won't hold anything back, you won't miss out on anything except for the regret that serving yourself always leaves. Those of us that have lived selfish lives, we've made selfish choices, we've done things that were focused upon us and our own fulfillment. We're not here proud of them going, man, I'm so glad I did that. We're filled with regret. In the moment, it seemed like the thing to do. But you know what? A way of man, you know, the, what's uh, everything... Uh, all, all things seem right in the way of, I can't think of the scripture right now, but basically everything seems okay. When we think about our own, there you go. Well done, sir. <laughs> Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7 says, Be careful for nothing but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Right? Live in total dependence of him. And verse 7 says, And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Do we live with that peace? In our hearts, do we live with a mind that is filled with God's presence? Is our life peaceful and loving and fulfilled? If it's not, there's a problem. Those are indicators to us of where we are. Now, most of us have learned how to mask our selfishness. As we get older, we get pretty slick at hiding it, right? We have this false humility sometimes, or this kindness, or this we're just this gracious person. Until something goes wrong. Maybe we get angry. And what will happen is that selfish child that we've hidden down for all those years will creep their way up to the surface. And what will come out? When we're angry, we might say something like, you know what? I don't deserve to be treated like that. If we're in envy, man, why doesn't my spouse do that for me? Why do they not have to struggle with their finances? And yet we do. Why can my life not just be the way I want it to be? I deserve what we deserve is hell. Amen. We don't deserve anything. Amen. But because of our arrogance and because of our pride and because of our self-will and our desire to fulfill ourselves, we think we deserve so much. Yet if God gave us what we deserve, not one of us would ever stand before God. Every one of us would burn in an eternal hell. Because bottom line is you and I make choices every day that are self-serving and they're not about God. And every day, God, you know what he does? It says his mercies are new every day. God is long-suffering in the midst of our struggles. Ephesians 2 verses 4 and 5 says this, But God, but God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, even when you were dead, even you were in the midst of it, even when you were right in the dead heart center of your sinful life, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace, ye are saved. Boy, we each have a pathway to this abundant life. It's all different for every one of us. 
Some of it's an easier road. Some have a very, very hard road. But let me tell you this. It's determined how hard the road is determined by how willing you are to submit your will to God, to surrender to him, and how willing you are to walk by faith and not by sight. You can fight tooth and nail every step of the way, but if God's goal is to get you that abundant life, sometimes he's going to put you through some very, very hard things. They're going to break your will and shatter you and break you as a person because it's in that brokenness that you can finally learn to depend upon God. Some of us are that hard-headed where we literally got to be hit across the back of the head with a two-by-four. Whack! To be waking up, woken up. Wakened up, sorry. I'm just... Uh, it's the first time with people, you know, I'm just excited because you're here, you know, it's feeling, feeling the pressure. <laughs> so we each have a pathway, right? The whole thing is, are we holding back? What is it we're holding back? So the Israelites are to sanctify their diets, their wealth, their families, and now they're going to supposed to sanctify their work. The Lord reiterates instructions that he gave to them in Exodus 23. This is the first time when they got to the base of the mountain. Moses was given these instructions. Six, day thou, six days thou shalt work, but on the seventh day thou shalt rest. In earing day, earing time, and in harvest thou shalt rest. The Lord is telling them to honor him in their work. And guess what? That's what we're supposed to do, even though our work is important, man. It's important. And for some of us, it's, it's even our identity. But God's saying, hey, 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 let's keep things in proper place. Let's keep things in the proper order. Because remember that golden calf issue? What happens? You can start to become... Your job can start to be something that you idolize. All of a sudden, you get all your respect through this job, and all of a sudden, that becomes your focus. And all of a sudden, next thing you know, you've taken your eyes off God, taken your eyes off your priorities, and you're stuck in your work. He says, sanctify your work unto me. Verse 22, and thou shalt observe the feast of weeks of the first fruits of wheat harvest and the, first, and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Thrice in the year shall all your men, children, appear before the Lord and God of Israel. Again, we see the Lord reinforcing the importance of these Israelites honoring the Lord. That's what he's trying to tell them. Hey, honor me, honor me. Not just daily, but guess what? Yearly as well, throughout the year. You're supposed to honor me every, every single day. What we have in our culture today we have the Christers, right? Those are the people that go to church on Christmas and Easter, right? That's what they do. <laughs> and the Christers show up and they go, oh, we're going to honor the Lord, man. We're going to show up. Hey, yeah, praise God, it's Easter. Right? And, but God's saying, hey, hey, it's not what I want. I don't want that. What I want you to do is honor me every day. Submit to me. Love me. Serve me. Right? Sanctify your work unto me. We see a picture of our selfish generation in that very concept of the Christers. Verse number 24. For I will cast out the nations before thee and enlarge thy borders. Neither shall any man desire thy land when thou shalt go up to, hear, to appear before the Lord thy God thrice in the year. And what's amazing here is God's making promises, right? He's making promises here just to get them to be faithful. Look, he's like, if you'll just, if you'll just do what I tell you, I promise I'll reward you, right? It's like dealing with little children. Look, if you'll do this, I promise I've got candy for you. I promise. Go clean your room and I, I got a piece. See this piece of candy? This has got your name on it. And if you go clean your room, guess what? You get that candy, right? Just be obedient. That's all I'm asking you. Just be obedient. And that sounds silly, but it's such a sad thing that these people will not serve God just out of gratitude. God, look how far he's brought them. Look what he's done in their life. Why not just go, hey, you know, because God, you're so good to me because I love you and I want to do this because I'm thankful for what you've done in my life. But they want to do what happens in our culture today. People don't surrender to serve God. They don't give their talents and abilities. They don't, they don't uh, give to God's work so many times because guess what? They're looking at themselves and going, you know, what am I going to get out of it? How does it serve me? How horrible is it that God has done all that he's done and he asks us to give back to him through the talents and abilities he's given us 
Some of us have talents and abilities, and we, you know, I could use it for God, but you know what? I'll keep it for myself. It's sad, but you know what? Out of thanks, we should be so willing to give him in anything that he's given us. Let's give it back to him. Guess what, man? We're just like these Israelites. They have a hard time giving in. Now, knowing that these Israelites are self-serving, stubborn, and prideful, he has to be certain to tell them what not to do, right? Not just tell them what to do, but tell them what not to do. How many times have you ever told your kids, okay, you give them instructions. All right, Timmy, I want you to go, and I want you to go clean up the living room. And now, Timmy, I, I don't want you to hide stuff under the couch. And, and Timmy, Timmy, I, I don't want you to just push everything into the corner and throw a blanket over it. Okay, Timmy, make sure you do go clean the, go clean the room, right? You qualify it. Why do you qualify it? Because you don't trust their judgment, right? You're like, go clean the room. They're like, okay, Psh, kick something in the corner. We're done, right? They run off. But we don't trust their judgment, so we make sure to reaffirm the instructions. And guess what? God does the exact same thing. He knows that they're going to cut corners. He knows they're going to do things the wrong way. Verse 25, thou shalt not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leaven, neither shall the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover be left unto the morning. The first of the first fruits of thy land thou shalt bring unto the house of, thy, of the Lord thy God. Thou shalt not seed boil, seed, which is mean boil, a kid in his mother's milk. That aspect of seething the, 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 the kid, the, that's a baby goat. What they would do is they would actually boil it in the milk of the mother. And the reason they did that, it was actually something that was considered to be a blessing. And they would take it to the farmland and they would pour it out and it was supposed to bless the land. It's a pagan practice that they had seen. And he's going, look, even in something as little as you boiling this thing and pouring this stuff on the ground, don't do any of it. I don't want you to mess with this paganism. Stay away from it. If you remember back in verses in Exodus 13 and in Exodus 23, he gave the same qualifications way back then. And guess what he's doing? He's reiterating them yet again, just like we do with our kids. Why do we repeat them? over and over again, so that it will sink in to make sure that they've heard us, right? God is simply doing that same thing. Why do you think time and time again, the concepts that God tries to teach us, when you read the Bible, you'll see the same concepts over and over and over and over again. Because, guess what? We're just like those kids. We hear it one time, hear it another time, how many times have we read something? You've read it 20 times. And on the 21st time, suddenly you're like, whoa, do you see what that says? Well, guess what? It said it the whole time, but you just weren't willing to hear it. The question is, do we have ears to hear, church? That's the key. God is speaking. The problem is most times we're not listening. These instructions from the Lord are to ensure that they honor him properly and keep themselves from sin. Verse 27. And the Lord said unto Moses, Write thou these words, for after the tenor of these words I have commanded, I have made a covenant with thee and with Israel. When it talks about tenor, it's talking about the overall meaning, the concept of what I'm trying to share here. What we see is that God's not giving unrealistic expectations. He's not being ridiculous and asking them. He's giving them clear warnings of what to watch out for. Hey, this is what I don't want you to do. And guess what? He's also said, hey, this is how I want you to succeed. This is how you do well. But I'm telling you, man, how many of us can think of when we were back in school, I was not a great student. I'm just telling you right up front. I was not a good student. So how many of us sat in school and our teacher said, you know what? I'm going to give you clear expectations of what not to do. Don't cheat. Don't not study. Don't spend your time playing. Focus, learn, memorize this and this and this. Do these things to succeed. And this is how you, this is how you do it. This is what I don't want you to do. This is what I do want you to do. And if you'll do it, guess what? You'll do well on the test. And how many of us still found a way to fail? Dude, I killed it, man. I, I could fail any test, I'm telling you. Because you know why? Why? Because we didn't listen to what we were instructed. We did it our own way. 
I'll do it my way, which is stay up late the night before the test, not study, wake up in the morning in a panic, try to look over the books, rush in the class, having half done it, sit down, fill out half as much as I could, try to see who was writing what, fill in the out, and, and fail the test miserably. I mean, imagine that. Because we didn't do what we were instructed to do. That is us as, as, as Christians. So many times when God gives us clear instructions in the, in the Scripture, yet we don't apply it, we don't listen to the warnings, and we don't do what it is to be successful. Still finding a way to fail. Clear instructions in the Word of God to avoid what we need to avoid, and clear instructions on, guess what? How to live a life that will honor God, that will bless you, that will use you, that will glorify God, which is the reason why you're here. And God gives all this instruction. And it goes in one ear and out the other. And the thing is, you know, there's some of us, guess what? Hey, we're in the Word. We read every day. Oh, Pastor, read read this morning, Pastor. Yep. Finished uh, uh, Deuteronomy 13. Yep, it's awesome. What would you get out of it? It's a good question. Hmm. I know there were some people in it. Um. They were dealing with something with the, um, and uh, I'm not really sure. I, you know, I need to go back and review that. And the thing is, unfortunately, because of the fact that we're so much check-the-box kind of people, that that somehow seems okay. When we get done, we go, oh, I did read my Bible. And I'm going to go sit in my car and say, hey, you know, he didn't read his Bible, but I did. <laughs> What'd you get out of it? Huh? Get out of it? What? The problem is, we don't have ears to hear, right? God says, hey, I'm telling you. Instructions in righteousness, warnings of sin, they're all there. Yet what do we do every day? Struggle to live righteously and do our very best to stay out of sin. And yet God says, hey, man, why don't you just listen? Why don't you just listen? I love you. I've told you what you need to do. Why don't you listen to me and apply it? Instructions in righteousness, guys. The problem is so many times we don't hear them. If we are in the word, man, and you are, the question is, are you listening to the instructions in righteousness? Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for today, God, for blessing us, for, Lord, guiding us through the scripture. Thank you, Lord, for this portion, God, where we've seen clearly how you do love humanity in spite of itself. Lord, you love us, uh, Lord, in a way that is so incredible and, uh, Lord, is, uh, is humbling. Lord, I pray that you help us as a church, Lord, online, around the world, wherever we may be, watching this recorded. God, that as a church, Father, we will stand for what's right, and Lord, we will stand upon this word, will allow it to instruct us in righteousness, that it'll reprove us, that it'll correct us. And God, that this word will become something that's important to us. Help us, Lord Jesus, to hear what you have for us and help us to apply it. One thing to hear it, another thing to apply it. God, to be a hearer, not a hearer only, but a doer of the word. God, if we will do what you will tell us, we will see this world change for the cause of Christ. But Lord, if we serve ourselves, it'll stay the same. Help us, Lord, to be convicted, to stand upon the truth, and to speak when given the opportunity, Lord, to share the truth. God, I pray for any that may be here today that says, you know what, I don't know you. I don't know the Lord. And God, there are plenty of people just like I was almost 19 years ago that didn't, hey, I'd heard of God, I knew about God, but I had never trusted God as my Savior. I knew if you asked me that day, if I was on my way to heaven, I would have said, I hope so. And if you're here, you're there, online, wherever you are. If you say, you know what, today was my last day on earth. I took my final breath today. When I left this room, I would drop dead. 
And right now, in my heart of hearts, I am afraid that I would not open my eyes in the presence of God. I'm afraid that I would open my eyes in a burning hell. And I want you to know that God loves you right where you are. It does not matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter anything. God's seen it all. God's seen everything you've ever done. He loves you in spite of it, just like he loves these Israelites, just like he loved me in the midst of my sin. And I want you to know that he loves you where you are, and he's willing to receive you as as your Savior. He's willing to forgive you. He's willing to pay the price that you could never pay. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God promises an eternity with him in love and fulfillment and joy and a life here that can be used for the profitable, for, to be profitable for God, that can make the difference in this planet and give you a joy and peace in your heart that you never imagined. But it's all a matter of this. Will you surrender your will to his? If you want to maintain things your way and you want to do it your way, guess what? You can pay the price yourself and it will be an eternity in suffering. Or you can say, you know what? Not my way. Let me do it your way. If you want to receive Christ as your Savior today, I want you to know I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray. It's not a matter of a ceremony. There's nothing magical about the words of this prayer. It's a matter of your heart. God's looking within you. God says, for with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. If you want to receive Christ, I'm going to lead you in prayer. You can pray this prayer in your heart and your mind. You can pray it out loud. It's not, to, it's not for me to hear. It's not for anybody to hear. God, and he is here with us, and he's with you wherever you are on this planet, and he's calling you right now. In response to him, if you want to receive Christ as your Savior, pray with me this prayer. And to understand, it's not the words. He's listening to your heart. Repeat after me. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. And I am so sorry for all that I've done wrong. I know that I deserve to pay the price myself. And I understand, God, that because of your love, you're willing to die for me. God, I'm asking you right now in the best way I know how, to come into my life, to forgive me of sin, and to save my soul. Not because I deserve it, but because you love me. Thank you for saving me. I'll see you in heaven one day. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.